Hi, everybody. This is Jeff Feingold, editor of the New Hampshire Business Review with our Down to Business podcast. As the year comes to an end, we have our associate producer, associate editor and producer, almost demoter, Amanda Andrews with us. And this week we have uh, a, com- a frequent guest to our, to our studios here in the uh, uh, penthouse, at, uh, Brian Gottlob who is director of the Employment and Labor Market Information Bureau. I think I got it right that time. Pretty close. <laughs> okay, something like that. And uh, he's, he, if, you know, he's the guy who knows as much or more about the New Hampshire economy than anyone I know, and I think anybody that there is. And unfortunately for him, that's what his, you know, he does. So he gets asked to comment on this a lot. So, Brian, first of all, welcome. Great to be here as always, Jeff. Love talking to you. Okay. I just, as I, as do I, like talking to you. So, anyway, um, I just wanted to start off with this because I know you never don't hear this question very often, but how's the New Hampshire economy doing? <laughs> I, I think we're doing pretty well, as a matter of fact. Um, you know, I think we've come through, uh, you know, a a 2022, that's been a pretty positive year overall. I mean, you know, we we sort of early on in the year, in the middle of the year, there was talk of a national recession that that faded, you know, with the third quarter GDP numbers, Um, people expecting that somehow the world was going to come to an end and things were going to start falling apart, and they haven't. Um, And I would argue that we're entering, about to enter 2023 with actually a little bit more momentum nationally, um, even as um, employment growth is likely to slow. But I think the economy has a fair amount of of momentum that should bode well for us and our ability to, you know, to maintain some level of growth in 2023. So what what do you think is driving that? Why, Why is a New Hampshire economy in particular Seeming, seeming so strong. I, mean, I, I agree. I mean, it just seems like it's just. I mean, I noticed some of the interest. The uh, unemployment rate's been creeping up. Yeah. It's not to a level where you'd be alarmed or anything. And actually, yeah. in some way, it'd be good for employers that people, yeah. you know. Yeah, I mean, there's you know, there's different reasons why the unemployment rate can go up, um, and this is kind of one of the frustrations I have. People when they hear about the unemployment rate, they immediately go to, and at rising, they immediately go to the thought that more people have lost their job, mm-hmm. that that's why the unemployment rate rises. Well, in fact, the unemployment rate can rise for a number of reasons, and some of them are good. Um, one of the ways it's good is if more people are entering the labor force or re-entering the labor force. And I can tell you that among the people who are unemployed in the state, who are listed as unemployed, only about 20% are job losers, people who have lost their job. The other, there's 60% who have are re-entrants or new entrants into the labor force. And there's 20% who are, who um, temporary jobs may have ended. Um, but overall, it's not a bad thing, um, you know, when the unemployment rate rises for the right reasons. And that 2.6%, as you say, Jeff, you know, that's, when is 2.6% unemployment <laughs> been problematic? I know, it, that's, it's true. It's like, you know, I, I go back to the days when, it, I bet in the 70s, there was this effort in the in United U.S. 
we had other economic issues going on at the time. And there was this bid by Senator Hubert Humphrey and I think Senator from Arkansas, I don't remember, but they tried to have a bill that would mandate that the United States un unemployment rate not go <laughs> below 4%. You're like, that would be full employment, 4%. would be <laughs> full employment. And here we are at 2.6, so we know what's on the other side of full employment. Yeah, I, and you know, while the unemployment rate is very low, uh, the thing, one of the things I think is, should be a little bit encouraging, it's both encouraging and discouraging, it should be encouraging for employers, is that there is still slack in the labor market, believe it or not. You know, when I look at the number of individuals and the percentage by different age groups that have stepped out of the labor force, for a period of time, and again, we've seen more people coming back in recently, um, but there's still slack. There are still a lot of people out there who are not in the labor force, and particularly troubling, Jeff, to me, is that a lot of those people are younger people, mm -hmm. um, which I just don't understand. They've been really reluctant, some to come back into the labor force. Um, so there's there's people out there who could be employed. and. Um, I think the challenge for New Hampshire, challenge for my organization, is how do we get people back into the labor force? Because they're out there. There are people who could be employed who right now, I, you know, to use a business economic term, the capacity utilization of our labor force is lower than it should be. It's lower than it was prior to the pandemic. Is it something that you think that higher wages can fix or is is that is it it's not that simple it, it, well higher wages have helped for sure um you know that makes the 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 work leisure trade-off um you know a little bit easier uh, or pushes it more toward the work um you know to the work choice um it, and it does help and but it for whatever reason it isn't quite sufficient and i think there's some other issues that are you know, wages are one aspect that are very important to workers, but uh, working conditions are really important. Flexibility is increasingly important. You know, when I look at what's happening in the labor market and how tight or how many job openings there are in relation to, you know, how many hirings, there's far more um, openings than there are people being hired. I would expect that wages would even rise faster. So I think one of the reasons for that is, is that it's not just wages that people want, it's that flexibility. Um, and that's a little bit harder. You know, that can be harder for some organizations to offer. Um, you know, they they don't have the, the his, as much of a history, they don't know how productive they can be with these different work arrangements. So I think that's a challenge. And I think solving that and becoming more comfortable with offering that to workers will help bring some uh, additional workers back. Plus, there's the issue of childcare, which is affecting, the, you know, the female labor force, particularly, you know, under the age of 40, um, women most likely to have children who are, um, you know, before school age. Um, that that's still problematic. Daycare um, is expensive, and the industry has been hit hard by the pandemic and really hasn't recovered. Yeah, you know, the, the women, the New Hampshire Women's Foundation put out its status of women report and and pointed out that that's one of the that's a probably the main reason that women have not rejoined the workforce and why women were, were the major uh, source of people not working because they had to stay, they didn't have to, but that was that's basically what society demands or imposes on them. And, uh, you know, and, and to get them back into the workforce, there has to be some more robust childcare system 
And, you know, that's something that I think beyond the ability of the economy to, to fix right now, it's like a public policy thing, but I don't know if it's on anybody's radar right now. It, well, it should be on the radar. And I have to say it's one of the most vexing problems because, you know, there's there's problems on the supply side and the demand side. The demand side, obviously, it costs a lot, mm -hmm. um, you know, and one of the ways you fix the supply side or encourage more providers and more people to work in it is to raise the wages. That's one of the big problems is that it's generally a low paying occupation, a lot of people who are in there. So if you want to get more people in the field, you have to raise the wages, which means what? Yeah. You have to increase the, the price. And so you affect the demand. It's just a really difficult problem. And, I, and you, if you look, you know, worldwide, um, probably the most successful countries in terms of daycare are ones that heavily subsidize it. And that's yeah. not, you know, that is not something that this country, you know, has really embraced um, as far as a public sector subsidy uh, or in, in small programs it has, um, but not overall. And um, you know, it's in a lot of ways, it's a public good. It's something that helps make our economy run more efficiently, but it's not really thought. It, it's seen as more of an individual kind of decision um, and not the broader um, implications in terms of productivity and efficiency in the economy. And I think until it is recognized as a almost an infrastructure kind of investment, um, we will probably never really uh, solve the problem if it can be solved. Yeah, I mean, I, I know that, you know, having been through New Hampshire or going through strains of having kindergarten, uh, you know, in the public schools, many places have universal pre-K. So you have, right. you know, kids going to being going to into a school setting or some kind of setting like that when they're three years old. And that, that would help alleviate it if, if the if there was a, a move to that. But that's takes a big investment, like you said, and, and it, it's yeah. also be a mindset change in New Hampshire. Yeah, and I think, you know, I've seen those discussions in individual school districts about offering more more pre-K. Um, but, you know, you were around with the, the kindergarten debates in the yes. state. Um, those were not easy and they were, you know, a long time coming. Um, I think the increment to pre-K is even more difficult because, you know, more people kind of accept kindergarten as a reality of, pub of public education. Um, Pre-K, again, is much more seen yeah. as sort of an individual family decision and maybe yeah. not so much as a, a responsibility or a public you know, school responsibility or public school good. So I think that's going to be very difficult. But you're right, that would alleviate a good portion of those. It would basically it would shift the cost of, of uh, child care from families yeah um, you know to 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 the public sector um and that's not something that we do a lot of in new hampshire no. or new hampshire is readily <laughs> you're being very you're being, you're being very generous yeah 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 it's just not a it's not a tradition um in this state but you know i i i think the longer the child care issue is problematic and you know it's going to be problematic uh, jeff because one of the things that uh, we learned in the last couple of years is that New Hampshire's birth rate really jumped up. You know, we had, in, in terms of percentage increase, we had like the largest percentage increase in, in our births of any state in the nation in 2021. Um, 
So that means great, that is wonderful for our demographics. We really need that. Um, but it also means there's gonna be more young families looking, you know, if they're gonna be active in the labor force um, for childcare. So um, maybe that's the kind of pressure that, that you know, gets the issue more prominent on the public agenda. So it's not very prominent right now. There's certainly hard, hardworking people looking at it in, in state government, um, but it's not right now at the top of the list. Yeah. There, there's another thing that that's, we've talked about several times, many times over the years actually, uh, that's limiting uh, the workforce, that's also housing affordable affordability. Where yeah. you see that right now, I know they, they put some money in and, um, we have a piece actually in, in uh, on our website on uh, with the outgoing president of the Realtors Association saying that you know they they've done some work on this but there's still a lot more to go you know okay. we really have a lot more to go towards affordability so you know what, what's what's your take on where are things standing right now I know that the market the real estate market's kind of in a strange yeah. place yeah I mean it, it you know I I am a a little bit of an iconoclast on this because I know we talk a lot about affordable housing. And my view is what we need to do is just build more housing, just build more housing because it, it is largely, the affordability issue is largely a supply issue. Um, and the, more, the greater the supply, the you know, you're going to lower the prices, including rental prices. One of the issues that we have right now is we've underbuilt and it's been underbuilt housing throughout the country really. But, you know, we're coming through a period where a lot of households have been formed, new households, as the millennial generation and the older Gen Z generations have entered, you know, the work, they start forming households. That means they're going to strike out on their own. Um, you know, after the, pan the pandemic, they, they were reluctant to do that. But post-pandemic, if there is such a thing, they've been doing that in great numbers. Um, at the same time, people who would be moving from the rental market into the home purchasing market have been constrained from doing that because there haven't been that many, one, prices have been very high and there haven't been that many opportunities to buy. So what you've got is a just a huge bulge kind of in the rental market with not a lot being built and that has raised raised the prices. So if you build more houses, Ideally, prices don't rise as much and people can buy those. So they move out of the rental market that frees up a little bit of rental properties. So that building more is number number one. And if you talk only about affordable housing, unfortunately, it becomes harder to build because that immediately sets off, um, yeah. you know, bells in communities. So I, I we can we can talk affordable housing, but when anybody says we only should be building affordable housing, I get very nervous because it's a supply issue. The more we build, the the more we'll take, um, you know, the pressure off prices. And importantly, Jeff, last year, and I know I pointed this out, New Hampshire added over 13,000 more people than moved out of the state in yeah. 2021. We that is wonderful for our demographics. They're well educated. You know, we generally attract people higher levels of educational attainment. If we don't have the housing, we can't continue that. And we need that because we have generally, that's how we grow is by people moving here. We have low mm -hmm. birth rates, that's gonna continue. Um, so when I look at the constraints, you're right. Housing is constrained, labor's constrained, 
And those two are are, are definitely related because mm -hmm. our labor force grows largely when people are attracted to New Hampshire and move here. Brian, we were talking about housing. I just want to get onto another thing that's closely tied to housing, and that's interest rates. Yeah. Which have gone up quite a bit this past year. And I guess there's a talk that the Fed's going to be doing another round of them shortly. Uh, I think maybe today. Today, <laughs> as a matter of fact, this, this <laughs> afternoon. I don't know when this podcast airs, but uh, um, today is the 14th and the Fed meets this afternoon and will announce what I expect to be a 50 basis point or one half a percentage point increase. Um, hopefully it will be not any larger than that. I don't expect that it will be, but I could be wrong. Yeah, the the, the good news is that, you know, the, inf the interest rates obviously are rising because of inflation, which has been really high. I mean, not historically high in any sense, right. but high enough that people, many people alive today have no sense of, of, of anything like this before. So uh, I noticed that inflation seems to be, the increase in prices seems to be easing somewhat. Yeah. So what do you what's your take on what's going to happen in 23 now if this easing continues? Do you, yeah. do you think that it's going to be like a like as as Treasury Secretary Yellen says like a, a soft landing or? Well, you I you know my my view of whether we'll have a soft landing has changed over the last several months, and I'm right now in in of the camp that I do think we will avoid a recession. Um, you know that's not to say there isn't a strong still probability i put the probability of recession at somewhere just under 40 percent and that's down from early a few months ago when i was over 60 percent from my perspective but i mm -hmm. think it's under under 40 percent. i think there is a path um to that i think you're you know the inflation issue is is absolutely critical i do think there um the inflation is starting to ease for a number of reasons and a lot of that inflation Jeff is is related to supply side issues. Um, you know, we had we got just just crushed by two uh, forces that you know nobody could have really seen. One, COVID and the 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 shutdowns and the the disruptions that caused just throughout the world in terms of uh, production of goods and services. Um, so you know that that helped raise prices, um, and then the Russian invasion of Ukraine, oil prices shoot up. Um, that affects food prices. That affects a lot of commodity prices because those were also um, constrained. So those one that one two punch is largely the biggest reason why inflation has been as high. Those things aren't going to last. Actually, we're you know we're seeing look at what's happening to oil prices. You know they're mm. they're they're not going to stay around seventy dollars or a little over. But we've managed, despite the disruptions of, you know, with the Russian invasion, to navigate that by increased production in other ways, uh, some drink, you know, taking down the reserves, et cetera. So we're managing that. Supply chains are starting to improve. Um, you know, mm -hmm. China has kind of eliminated their lockdown policy, which should make, you know, um, production there. And we rely on a lot of component parts from that. So a lot of things are moving in the right and rents, believe it or not, nationally, I don't know New Hampshire, but rents nationally are starting to ease. The increase are, are easing. And that will take a long time to show up in the CPI because, you know, rental contracts are for a year. So they adjust on a yearly basis, but that will it doesn't happen all at once like gas prices. Um, so I fully expect that by the end of 2023, inflation will be much closer and probably a little under 4%. Now, it's not mm -hmm. 
fast as we would like, and by sometime in 2024, probably mid 2024, we'll be back down to that 2.5, anywhere between two and 2.5 percent that we now. There's a lot of unknowns that could affect that, um, you know, a diff, another oil shock or, or whatnot. But that's the path I think we're on. I think the, I think that it's working. I, I really do see, um, you know, prices um, starting and many of them starting to ease. And I think those trends are going to continue. Yeah, it, it does. It does seem to me that that's going to be happening. But the, one of the things that I, that that really uh, intrigues me is that there's a sense still among a lot of people that you know the economy is headed for over a yeah. cliff or maybe not yeah. over a cliff but yeah, yeah. We're not yeah. going to a good place and i think this is my own feeling and i am trying to run this by you i think there's a lot of news about these big layoffs yeah. Yeah. mostly yeah. If, if not even all of them by tech companies you know high yeah. profile yeah. tech Twitter, obviously, that's kind of a self-inflicted thing, but Twitter, Meadow, you know, all Amazon, all, all laying off. But from what I can see, it seems like most of those big layoffs are in that industry. Yeah, I'm absolutely. Not, talking, not, in New Hampshire. not the kind of tech yeah. stuff we're doing in New Hampshire, but, you know, these big right. companies. Right. So, yeah, yeah. No, and that makes, you know, that and that actually makes a lot of sense. Um, one, they were the companies that had the biggest run-up during the pandemic, when you think about it, what you know, what was one of the 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 key factors during the pandemic economically is that so much went digital, right? Um, so a lot of those tech companies that you're talking about that have laid, had increasing demand. Um, you know, people were using digital services much more, um, so they just you know hired like crazy. Um, but when you look at you know what percentage of the workforce are they? It's not that significant, and Look, I don't feel too bad about some meta engineer getting laid off. Do you think he's going to be he's going to be out of work for as long as he wants to be out of work or she? <laughs> <laughs> so I don't worry that much about it. But your larger point about the pessimism, that is it's it is in all of my professional career, I have not seen this much pessimism um, among the the electorate or among, you know, households and and businesses to some degree. Um, they're, I think they're a little more realistic, but one of the things I've learned is that that the difference between how people say they feel about the economy and what they actually do is very big because people are still spending, retail spending is still happening. Granted, you know, credit, they're increasing their use of credit to do it, but they may indicate and they certainly do that they feel badly household surveys sentiment consumer sentiment surveys are way down down where below where they were during the depths of the pandemic and mm -hmm. and this is my concern is that recessions are fundamentally about a loss of confidence so when consumers lose confidence and they don't spend which by the way they're not doing they've lost confidence but they're still spending and businesses <laughs> lose confidence and stop hiring that's when you have a recession so I was concerned that we talk ourselves into a recession I think the pessimism is unrealistic I think there's uh you know the labor market is way too strong for any kind of imminent recession look we're adding we're concerned because we're adding 250,000 jobs a month if you went back five years and and looked at how many months we ever added 25 you know 2000 jobs you wouldn't find it you'd say my god our economy's roaring so it's gonna 
you know, it's not going to happen. We're not, you know, we're not flipping the switch on 2023 and all of a sudden we're walking off a cliff. I, I, I am increasingly um, optimistic that we can, it's not going to be a great year, but I'm increasingly optimistic we can avoid a recession. And maybe, you know, I'll be, I'll be happily, I'll admit if I'm wrong, but um, I just cannot accept the, the pessimism that seems so pervasive. It's just way out of whack from my perspective. Well, especially when, when you know you, you see you know the sh people shopping and you know yeah yeah, yeah. I just happened to go to Target the other day <laughs> yeah. and there's people in front of me yeah. I didn't know how much how much stuff they had in their cart and the yeah. bill was like six hundred and something bucks yeah so yeah, yeah. You know, all kinds of little things you know presents and I was like well and, that, and you know that wasn't their only sh shopping trip yeah. for Christmas sure. yeah I look at uh, you know I try to look at real time indicators because one of the problems and I don't want to disparage where I work, but government data comes out slowly with yeah. a lag and once a month. So I look at things like, you know, open table restaurant reservations in New Hampshire, and um, they are up really significantly. They're up more than across the U.S., more than Massachusetts, you know, compared to pre-pandemic levels. I look, you know, compare them to pre-pandemic levels. And that's one of the first things that people cut back on. You know, these are seated reservations, so people actually, you know, butts in seats, excuse me. But um, so it's it, it's actually people doing, and that's one of the things that you see people cutting back on pretty quickly when they're less confident and when they're cutting back their spending is, you know, the line is going up. And this is data through, you know, I look through December 12th, so just a couple of days old. Um, so that you know, that's one of the things that says to me, people aren't cutting, you know, they're not cutting back. They're certainly not cutting back in New Hampshire. And it doesn't say it won't happen. I expect that expenditures you know, will slow, um, but that's not the same as falling off a cliff in a recession. Yeah, I, mean, I, I, I get that sense too. I mean, I, I you know, we, you know, the car, car dealers are starting to maybe actually getting some more inventory now and, you know, I know there's been a huge demand for electric vehicles, but New Hampshire, because of, for various reasons, well, maybe not various, for one reason, because we don't have really a zero emissions uh, type of thing, that, you know, we're, we're not we're not high on the list of providing us with electric vehicles, but I know that there's backlogs of a couple of years for some people who are ordering these things. There's a demand yep. for this, and those are not cheap vehicles. Right, you know, right. The cheapest vehicle is expensive. Right. Well, more expensive than, than, than a internal combustion, and uh, this is the kind of stuff that's going on out there. And I don't, people don't do that kind of thing if when they really, they might be thinking or feeling, but not thinking. Yeah. You know what I mean? I, it's like yeah. it's not connected. Yeah, the the connection. The, I mean, there's never been a extremely strong correlation between consumer sentiment and what their actions are, um, but I tell you, it's about as wide as it's ever been. So. Yeah. It, you know, you look and you would say, geez, the public is pretty miserable. But then you look at the, you know, the monthly retail numbers, or I, uh, I look at things like the restaurant reservations or rooms and meals spending in New Hampshire, and it just does not bear any resemblance to those negative kinds of uh, sentiments. So um, I think we need to be cautious. And, and you know, I am. I hate to be. I'm not Pollyannish. I mean, I base my assessment on looking at data every day, and it changes on a weekly basis. Whether I, you know, what the probabilities I think of recession. So I'm not just being Pollyannish. I just think we have got to at least consider the alternative view that 
we can avoid a recession. And I, and you know, when 60% of economists assume or 70% assume, I get very nervous because <laughs> they never agree on anything. And if there, <laughs> if there's that many saying there's there's a going to be a recession, then I'm happy to be in the minority on that one. <laughs> whenever they agree on everything is guaranteed not to happen. I know I got to let you go, but I want to show one other thing. When do you think, is there going to be an inf a number on the inflation rate where the Fed will stop um, raising interest rates? You know, I know 7.1 doesn't sound like the way you'd stop doing it, but you know. Yeah, no, no. I, you know, I, I think it's going to be like under five, you know, and I, I don't think that's that far off. Be honest with you, um, they're they're probably going to spend as much time looking at what's happening with wage rates because that makes them especially nervous when when wages rise because they get concerned that you know the rise in wages is going to force businesses to pay more, raise prices, and that sets in motion the wage price spiral. So they're, they're you know they got a little bit nervous over the last wage report which showed you know after several months of decline in annual wage rates. It bumped up. I think I don't pay attention to one month. I look for a trend of at least a few months. So I think it will have to be under five. I I do think what is going to happen is I think they're you know the the size of their increases is gonna is gonna diminish. Yeah. Uh, but what they might do is just keep them keep raising a little bit longer. Uh, you know, just a little comfort to have still have that trend <laughs> of of raising rates, just not these big big bumps because I really do think what they've done one it, it's working when I look at a lot of indicators not that I'm in favor of them raising rates dramatically because I think this is fundamentally as I've said a supply side issue and raising rates hurts demand it doesn't yeah. do anything really anything for supply it, it yeah. you know if rates rise it doesn't mean there's going to be more oil shipped or produced it doesn't mean that more factories are going to open up and those are you know the to me, this is the the rise in prices is at least three quarters of it is related to supply side issues, and the raising of rates does not necessarily address that. So um, I, I I do think they're you know today will be telling if if they go 50 basis points, which I expect they will, that will at least alleviate fears which I had uh, maybe a month or two ago of a, another 75 basis point, three quarters of that, then we're really getting into, you know, my view, problematic um, in terms of killing economic activity. It's going to have a dampening effect. You know, you talk about cars. Well, there is going to be more cars. Production's really picking up. Um, but rates are, rates are rising. That's going to hurt some of the demand. We know it's going to hurt demand for housing. It already has. Um, so it'll, those are going to quell some sectors of, of the economy, um, but it's not going to do anything for the supply side. And that's where I think they need, you know, and they don't have any tools for the supply side. The Fed has a very limited set of tools and yeah. they can't solve all the problems. Well, I will thank you for a somewhat optimistic conversation. Very optimistic. Come on. I was very optimistic. You know, the problem is, is that I, I, didn't want, I didn't want to make it seem like Pollyanna. That's all. It, well, it, economists are trained to look for bad news and journalists <laughs> love writing about bad news. So the chances that we were going to come out of this, Jeff, with any kind of optimism 
was not very good, but I'm 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 gobbling. Really, really, we almost got there. My whole team. <laughs> we almost got there. I just wanted to hear you say, "Yeah, I'm in the no recession camp." That was that was one of my hidden goals. <laughs> well, thank you. All right, Brian Gottlieb. I want to thank you for your very optimistic outlook for uh, 2020. And with that being said, I wish you a great holiday and a very happy New Year. And to everybody out there as well. And uh, you know, really, we have maybe we have something really good to look forward to in 2023 instead of all the doom and gloom. But then again, being in New Hampshire, we're gonna get a lot of presidential candidates around here. I assume, you know, if the primary is still gonna be held when it's supposed to, and then there'll be more doom and gloom. So, but whatever. Anyway, uh, thanks, Brian Bogalov again, and thank you, Amanda, and uh, be well, everybody.